regulatory changes and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to another episode of Wise Up. Today we're joined by Fiona Robertson. Fiona is a culture and leadership expert who holds an MBA from London Business School and is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and the Institute of Executive Coaching and Leadership. She is the former head of culture for the National Australia Bank, NAB, where she spent 12 years in senior executive positions. She is now an independent speaker, facilitator, executive coach and author. Fiona has consulted to dozens of large and small blue chip organisations domestically and internationally, with all levels of government in Australia, and coached numerous senior executives. Clients have included ANZ, AGSM, RMIT, Monash College, IBM, NASDAQ, NCR, Oracle and McKinsey & Company. Her first book, Rules of Belonging, Change Your Organisational Culture, Delight Your People and Turbocharge Your Results, was published in 2020. Welcome, Fiona. Thanks very much for having me. Impressive bio, Fiona. (laughs) I've certainly had some fun in my career, that's for sure. Yeah, and congratulations on the book launch. Thank you. Yes, it's been uh, an interesting learning curve. Um, you, you, you look at uh, writing a book and you think that the writing is the hard part. <laughs> I've learned an awful lot about what it takes to publish a book. So my, um, my respect for those who've gone before has increased through this process, that's for sure. Very good. And did you have the uh, book launch that you envisaged during this time? Or <laughs> No, I think you could, uh, you could safely say it wasn't quite the way I planned it. Um, it was in... Uh, uh, early June and um, of course I'm uh, well not of course your, your listeners don't know but I'm based in Melbourne so we were in the midst of uh, lockdown and so we had an online uh, book launch it was interesting though because um, it meant that you know what what might have been a, a more intimate face-to-face affair with you know posh champagne or whatever <laughs> I was planning um, turned into a, what ended up being a much larger exercise because uh, we had a couple of hundred people um, from all over the place, which is something you couldn't do if it was face-to-face. So, you know, pros and cons. Absolutely. So how has, um, how has it been writing a book? Uh, look, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, um, although um, I love the quote. I don't even know who said it, but somebody once said, uh, I, I hate writing, but I love having written. Um, so certainly looking back on it is easier than uh, than looking forward, you know, and uh, and being in the middle of it. Um, I've, I've enjoyed it, though, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it gave me a, the perfect opportunity to really refine down my own thoughts and ideas um, and hone them down to, to messages that were clear and succinct. And one of the things I think um, is the greatest problem with organisational culture is it's been so overcomplicated. Uh, so it was a really great opportunity to just make it something that was accessible and easy for leaders to understand and therefore act upon. Um, And I think, too, just the opportunity to be able to share what I've learned, um, some of which has, you know, been been kind of hard-won experience, uh, being able to share that has been enormously satisfying. And and I've been really gratified by the response to the book. Uh, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback and um, people are recommending it and so on. So that's, uh, that's obviously a lovely feeling. What was the catalyst for you to write the book, Fiona? 
Well, um, after I left the National Australia Bank, I decided that I was going to start my own um, consulting practice. So um, I really enjoy helping leaders and particularly uh, helping them understand what culture really is because I think there's a lot of discussion about it. In fact, I think culture is probably the most widely discussed and possibly the most widely misunderstood concept in business today. So um, having lived that uh, and been frustrated by it, um, I felt that there was a real need to put a new perspective on what culture really is and what it isn't and uh, help people understand that what you really need to change sits under the surface of behaviour. So, um, yeah, I guess it was my own frustration uh, with some of that, um, you know, that, that misunderstanding, that ambiguity, this kind of overly complex idea of culture uh, and wanting to just make it, make it accessible. So what should culture look like? Hmm. Uh, culture should look like whatever it needs to look like to accelerate the execution of strategy. So one of the problems that I've seen um, happen very frequently is that conversations about strategy and conversations about culture are separated. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, what our new strategy should be, particularly at this time. Pretty much every organisation I know, large and small, is rethinking its strategy for obvious reasons. But the question I very rarely hear asked is, do we have the culture to execute our desired strategy? Uh, Because, you know, the old old, um, chestnut strategy, it's culture for breakfast, you know, what that's essentially trying to say is um, you can have, um, sorry, I said strategy, it's culture for breakfast. I've got my, I've got, I've, I've got who <laughs> eats who. I'm the wrong way. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, look, the reality is nobody really eats anybody for breakfast because if culture and strategy aren't eating at the table together, then you've got a real problem. So I see strategy happening in isolation. I also see a lot of work on culture in isolation. So working on your culture in the absence of, you know, for what reason um, is is usually an exercise in trying to make everybody feel good. Uh, but neither of those things in isolation is going to lead to organisational performance. Only when they are really linked together is are you going to see an increase in performance. So your question, you know, what, what is, uh, you know, what should culture look like? Um, I think there's an underlying assumption uh, that I would take issue with. Um, I don't mean in your question, but I mean just generally in business, that there is sort of one good culture that we should all somehow be aspiring to. Um, and I don't believe that's true. I think unless everybody's got the same strategy, then they shouldn't have the same culture. So uh, the answer to the question is your culture should be whatever it needs to be to accelerate the execution of your strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, it's very industry centric as well. And, um, you know, size of organisation and all those sort of fun facts. And um, yeah. And I think too, like from our perspective, like from a governance um, framework perspective, it's really good to have um, not just strategy and culture humming together, but also the operational and risk management sides of the business as well, and kind of uh, have a more holistic um cohesive approach to an organisation as well. So, yeah, no, that's really good. Yeah, and look, I totally agree. Um, And interestingly, the approach to risk is often a cultural issue. So, you know, being, uh, you know, the degrees of um, acceptance of 
you know, risk, whether it's it's uh, operational or in um, you know in, in the case of a bank where I was, um, credit risk. You know, whichever way you look at risk. Uh, often that is a cultural issue. And so I think all of these things are really closely linked and need to be to work together. So if somebody asked you the question, how would you define culture, Fiona? How would you define it? Yeah, Um, I think that is the question, actually. Um, I I see a lot of confusion about this. So people talk about it a lot, uh, but I'm not quite sure most people really understand exactly what it is that you're talking about when you're talking about culture. So for me, um, I mean, I've, I've named my book The Rules of Belonging, and that's because that's how I define culture. And the reason that I define it that way is because I think culture is what happens under the surface of behaviour. So I have seen um, organisations where identical behaviour between two different organisations is interpreted very differently. And the interpretation of that behaviour is actually where culture lives. So the way this works is, um, is actually based on the fact that the human brain is essentially unchanged from about 80,000 years ago. And back in those days, it was necessary for us to belong in groups in order to survive. So um, belonging in groups is, in fact, the most fundamental need of human beings. Um, And that means that that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the, the, the thing we're all taught at school that tells us that food, water and shelter, you know, the bottom of that pyramid, food, water and shelter are the most basic needs of human beings. That's actually been proven now to be incorrect, which sounds ridiculous, I know, <laughs> as I speak it. Um, but it's only ridiculous in the context of our of our modern world Um, because 80,000 years ago if you were not a member of a group you wouldn't get access to food water and shelter and you would die so the actual most fundamental need of a human being is belonging in groups so the reason that this has got any relevance to organizational culture is because that hardwiring is so deep in us in our subconscious minds that we have a subconscious that is essentially screaming at us if you don't belong you will die and most of us have no idea that this is going on but the way it plays out in organizations is that when you join a new group so you might join a new team or a new organization we have evolutionary superpowers that allow us to figure out very quickly what it takes to earn belonging in this group and in as well what loses belonging in this group. So we we look around and we figure out what is successful behaviour in this group and slowly but surely we adopt that behaviour as our own. So we kind of go native um, and start to adopt, you know, people say the way we do things around here. That's essentially the rules of belonging, what it takes to earn belonging in this place, so what is successful behaviour and what it takes to lose it. And once you have earned your belonging based on the existing set of rules in the organisation or the team, then it becomes in your interests to keep that set of rules the same, which is one of the reasons why um, change can be so difficult in organisations and particularly changing culture. So my definition of culture is it is the rules of belonging in the group and the only way I've ever seen to change culture is to change those rules of belonging. Yes, very good analogy, um, Fiona, that's very good. Uh, so in terms of, um, I guess, examples of where you've seen um, 
culture played out very, very well. What are the sorts of things that, um, whether it be leaders or underlying operational teams or the board, um, what sort of things have you seen um, executed to develop a really rewarding and positive culture? Mm. Look, um, it's a great question. Uh, The first thing I would say that's absolutely essential is that you have to first notice what your culture is. Um, And I think that's a much harder thing to do than people will often realise. So I speak to a lot of board directors who say, don't worry, we're monitoring culture because we have an engagement survey. So there's this underlying assumption that engagement and culture are either the same thing, which they're not, or that they are extremely closely related. Um, Now, there are relationships, but they are fundamentally different things. So culture is the underlying system, or what I call the rules of belonging, and engagement is an employee's experience of that system. So those are not the same thing, and the kinds of questions that are asked in engagement surveys are not ever going to get to what the underlying culture actually is. So um, an example I could give is, um, let's say the boss sacked Harry. Uh, no engagement survey will ever ask your people, um, why do you think the boss sacked Harry and what do you think about that? So if the boss, if people believe that the boss sacked Harry because the boss thought that Harry was unethical, then that's going to have a very positive impact on your culture. If people believe that the boss sacked Harry because the boss didn't like Harry, that's going to have a very negative impact on your culture. So so the first thing people need to do is notice and genuinely measure what their culture is. So what what is what are the rules of belonging in this group? What is approved of, what is disapproved of? And so what is the interpreted behaviour, not what is the observed behaviour? Those are two very different things. So that's the first step is you, you can't change anything. You can't make choices about anything until you first notice what it is. Um, and then, of course, once you've noticed and you've established what your current rules of belonging are, then the next question is, well, what do you want them to be? And that goes back to what I said earlier. The answer to that is you want them to be whatever it takes to accelerate the execution of your strategy. And then, of course, the next question is, how am I going to move from one to the other? So um, one of the most effective ways of, of getting culture to shift is being really explicit about what you want the future to look like and then making sure that the behaviours that you want to encourage more of are the behaviours that earn belonging, other behaviours that get approval, other behaviours that are safer. So the new behaviours have to be safer for you than the old. So um, that, again, doesn't answer the question, you know, what is the perfect culture? Because as I said before, the perfect culture is whatever it takes to execute your strategy. But that that outlines what it takes to to decide what that should be and, and shift from one to the other. So what about where there's an organisation that... Um, Harry's fundamental in executing on strategy and then Harry suddenly decides to leave for personal reasons to focus on his family and reading between the lines that, you know, Harry was probably moved sideways. How does, you know, where there might be, um, I guess, a little bit of... um, Oh, I guess uh, miscommunication between um, CEO and underlying management. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
I don't believe there's anyone on earth who ever believes that message, I've left to spend more time with my family, which is actually kind of tragic when you think about it, because some people genuinely do leave to spend more time with their family, but no one believes that. So they will assume that, you know, Harry jumped or he was pushed. Um, And as I said before, what matters is why people think that happened. Uh, So they will make that judgment based on um, what they know of him, Uh, They will make that judgment based on what they know of his manager and uh, what they've seen around the rest of the organisation. If he is a person who is critical to operations but has been behaving poorly, for example, um, I always think that's a good thing. Um, I'm just trying to remember who it was who said that uh, people who achieve results with poor behaviours should be taken out and publicly shot. Um, (laughs) Uh, because you know, um, uh, you know, performance through the through the means do not justify the ends. You know, or the ends do not justify the means. I'm getting both things around the wrong way today. <laughs> um, it's really essential that you know the way we do things is is as important as the results we get. So again, it comes back to why do people think Harry left? Mm. And they'll make their own decision. They'll yep. make their own, come to their own conclusion about that. And unless somebody asks them what their conclusion is, you'll never know. You, you're essentially just flying blind from there on. So would it be a better, um, I guess, outcome for an organisation to be, you know, rip the Band-Aid off and be a little bit more transparent in those sorts of circumstances and say, well, you know, Harry wasn't performing or... Um... <sighs> Yeah, look, that's a, that's a great question and it has no simple answer because every situation is obviously going to be very nuanced. And um, I think one of the most important things is that people who do leave the organisation are treated with dignity and respect, regardless, well, almost regardless of the reason for their departure. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if they've done something illegal or immoral, um, that, that caveat wouldn't, you know, that that would be a caveat. But um, for the most part, one would like to um, show dignity to the people who have left. So it's, it is a tricky situation. I know we're talking a lot about, you know, somebody being fired or leaving the organisation today. And that's, it's obviously one example, but I think it is, it is an important one to sort of examine. Um, I think that uh, where there is any sort of, um, you know, immoral or um, unethical behaviour, I actually think that, you know, being People don't need a lot of information uh, to be able to come to their own conclusions. Um, I think that being, you know, reasonably clear about that, 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 you know, there wasn't a fit here is enough uh, for people to go, okay, something wasn't working there and um, then they'll come to their own conclusions. I do think it's very important to think about this notion, um, you've probably heard this, this idea before, of psychological safety. So there's a professor, Amy Edmondson, who's done a lot of work in this area um, and what she discovered was that the, the single most important factor in effective teamwork is psychological safety. So people feeling that they have... Uh, they will be given the benefit of the doubt if they admit a mistake, if they ask a question, if they challenge the status quo, um, if they have a new idea. Uh, so people, if people feel that they will be well treated and they are psychologically safe, so essentially they won't lose belonging um, by doing any of those things, then you are likely to see um, better performance and you know a generally better culture um, with with some nuance depending on the 
the strategy that you're trying to execute. In your experience, how effective do you think employment surveys, engagement surveys work? Um, so I think they, are, they can be useful. Um, I think they're a great catalyst for uh, good quality conversations with your people to figure out, you know, what it is that um, they enjoy about the workplace and what they feel needs to change. Um, I do not, however, think they will tell you if there is an underlying problem with your culture. Uh, so um, my team and I ran the engagement survey at NAB for about five years. That told us everything was fine. Uh, and then we ran a culture diagnostic that told us a very different story. I'm not telling tales here. This is public. Uh, it came out through the Royal Commission. So um, I just don't believe that engagement surveys will tell you about culture. They'll tell you about engagement, um, and that's not nothing. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think they're necessary but not sufficient is probably the short answer. Yeah, there's, a, I guess, a bit of a mixed... Um... Uh, you know, opinion about engagement surveys and, you know, having had to answer them a lot myself and you, you, you sort of get um, people who go, oh, I didn't answer that honestly because, you know, for fear of retribution or to, um, you know, just tell people what they think they want to hear. The lack of an anonymity. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and, and look, it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I know that uh, most larger organisations go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that the results or that, that um, the feedback that's gathered from their people is com completely, you know, unidentifiable. Um, but, but, you know, that's, as I said before, the facts and what people believe are not necessarily the same thing and people will act on what they believe regardless of the facts. Mm. So um, it's really tricky. And I think, um, you know, asking the kinds of questions that I would like to ask, so, you know, why do you think the boss did X or Y and what do you think about that, is not the kind of thing that you're ever going to get from a survey. Mm. It really is going to come down to focus group type qualitative research and done by someone skilled enough to, um, to be non-threatening and yet to be able to hear for what is said and what is unsaid. So it's quite a nuanced um, skill. And I think, you know, any, any self-respecting board who is not doing that kind of research amongst their people is definitely, definitely missing uh, some of what is going on under the surface for their people. Mm. And how do you feel, I guess, um, uh, culture is driven or not driven by particular incentives for um, executives, whether it be performance plans or bonuses or things like that. And obviously they're coming under a fair amount of scrutiny at the moment with um, uh, pressures put on business models and compressed cash flows, etc. Uh, how do you think they're sort of um, driving culture at the moment? Yeah, I think they're absolutely critical. Um, but interestingly, not necessarily because of the money, um, but because of what they signal is 
um, good, what good looks like around here. So I can give you um, a, a well-known example. Um, the uh, US bank Wells Fargo was for years held up as this absolutely perfect example of cross-sell. So, you know, number of products per customer, for example. And banks all around the world were looking at them with great envy and saying, we have to do what they're doing. And people were rolling out their sales methodology left, right and centre. Um, and what ended up uh, being the case was that their targets were set so high that um, the bankers there had to start to open accounts that their customers didn't even know about and transmit um, tiny amounts of money between them to make them look like they were active accounts. And once this practice was so widespread that the only way to achieve your target was to do the same, um, then it became completely endemic. And in the end, they had to fire 5,300 bankers. Yeah. Now, I look at that situation and I say to myself, that's not 5,300 individually unethical human beings. Yeah. That is people who had no other way to belong in that place than to do that same behaviour. That's what belonging became in that place. And it was as a result of a, a poorly set target that was just completely unachievable. And, you know, that's not a bad apple in the barrel. That's a bad barrel. And that's what culture is. That's those kinds of rules um, set you know, what it what good looks like around here and what it takes to belong. And people will do almost anything for belonging, particularly if there's a paycheck attached to it. Mm. How do you turn that around, Fiona? Mm. So you would have to, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in remuneration um, and there are whole industries of experts in this space. But the question I would encourage every executive to, to ask themselves is, what does it take to belong in this place? And you know, let and, and, and hope that the things that it does take to belong are in fact the things you want to see more of. So that would that's the fundamental question. Um, and it's it's easy to it's easy to say that. It's obviously hard to do. Um, you know, it's 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 not easy, but it is simple. You know, what what do we want to see more of? Let's let's uh, make sure that that is approved of. And, you know, as I said, it's not necessarily about the money. Um, I know another example um, of a sales organization who allowed, uh, firstly, they had a an annual um, uh, convention, you know, back in the days when that was a thing. Um, and they would go to exotic locations. You know, I don't know whether it was Hawaii, but, you know, something of that sort of ilk. And, um, you know, the, the people, the salespeople who got to go there were kind of lauded. And one year they decided that they would allow their salespeople to buy with real money points that would earn them the right to go to this convention. And many of their salespeople did so. So they actually ended up spending more of their own money than it would have cost them to simply go to a, on a holiday to that same exotic location. But they were so desperate to appear like they belonged in that group that they spent their own money to buy these points to go along to this convention and when interviewed afterwards said that it was the best money they'd ever spent. So, you know, people will do almost anything to belong in the kind of groups that they want to be seen to be part of. And that's that kind of relational question is not often asked. So, you know, what, what do people want to see themselves as? That question is not often asked 
in in the same terms as remuneration. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's thinking about remuneration to think about the relational and not just the financial rewards. It's an interesting study in human behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, astonishing. Saki <laughs> mm. <laughs> there. Um, so in terms of, um, I guess, retaining the right talent as well, um, what sort of cultural drivers sit behind that? Like if you remove the incentivization from a monetary perspective, what other things could you be doing to re- attract the right talent and retain the right talent? Mm. Look, um, the one thing I, I've seen a lot of, uh, which I think doesn't work, is I've seen a lot of people who try to recruit their way to a new culture. So the logic seems sound when you first look at it. So they'll say things like, um, if we just hire more ethical people, then we'll have more ethical decision-making. If we just hire uh, people who are more creative, then we'll get more innovation um, and so on and so forth. Um, And what happens is that those people will join the organisation and they'll do what I said before. They'll look around, they'll figure out what it takes to belong in that place and they will slowly but surely begin to adopt that behaviour as their own or they will opt out. So if they feel that they can't or won't earn belonging in their new place, um, they will opt out uh, either through their own choice or because the kind of immune system of the uh, of the organism will, will kind of reject them. And so um, I, I, that whole idea of, you know, we can recruit our way to a new culture just doesn't work. People go native or they leave. And so um, I, that's not really answering your exact question. You asked me, what does it take to attract the right talent? Um, so the question I'm kind of asking is, well, what's the right talent? Uh, if, if you know, I, I think all of us have been in that uh, in that experience of our careers where someone has said to us, I'm, I'm hiring you because I want you to shake things up. I want you to come in here and change a few things. And then you'll arrive in that new organisation all gung-ho, ready to change things and discover that, um, you know, somehow or other nobody wants to change anything. All the, all the suggestions you make about what could be improved and how things could be done differently and better, people will find all sorts of subtle and not so subtle ways to tell you that, well, yeah, sure, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that the way we've been doing it is fine and, you know, we want to keep things the way they are. And that's, again, back to this idea that, you know, once I've earned my belonging through a particular a set of rules and it becomes in my interest to enforce those rules. And even though most people don't know why this is happening to them um, and it's because their subconscious is screaming, if I don't belong here, I will die. And any change is, is a potential threat to that belonging. So yeah, it's, it's um, you know, attracting and retaining the right talent um, and the intersection with culture change is a really interesting question and not, not at all as simple as sometimes sometimes it's made out to be. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of, um, you know, the flaws in change management. And a lot of times they'll bring in a, you know, a chief transformation officer or something like that. And um, there's no communication lines there about what's going to change, what's not going to change. Let's all get on the bus. Let's all go on the journey together. And having those um, right uh, frameworks in place that manage any sort of hostility or um, deviation from the plan. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, um, one of my favourite researchers is a guy called Matthew Lieberman. He heads up the uh, Cognitive Neuroscience Unit at UCLA. And um, he did a fascinating experiment which proves that the human brain cannot distinguish social pain from physical pain, uh, which sounds like an extraordinary thing to say. Um, uh, I think it's probably worth me just describing the experiment briefly mm, because sure. I think it, it's it's a fascinating study. So, um, uh, you know, firstly, they were able to use new technology, which is something called a functional MRI machine. So MRI machines used to be, you know, the big tube you had to lie in and all of that. But now there's a a thing called a functional MRI machine, which is essentially you can wear an MRI machine on your head while you're doing things. And that means neurologists and neuroscientists can study us while we're in the middle of an activity. So that was the technology that was used in this experiment. And they um, they got the subject of the experiment and asked them to sit in front of a screen and told them that they were going to be throwing a ball, this electronic ball, between themselves and two other people. Now, they were actually uh, playing against computers, uh, but they believed that there were other people involved. And in round one of the experiment, they were told, I'm awfully sorry, we're having some connection problems. Um, You can't join in right now, but could you please just sit and watch the other two people throwing the ball between them for a moment or two while we get it sorted out? So, of course, they were using that as a baseline for the experiment. Um, And in the second round of the experiment, they're told, um, okay, your your console is working now. Connection problems are solved. You can join in. And so this notional ball that was being thrown between the three people, you know, they were throwing it between them for for a few minutes but then after a little while the other two people started throwing it just between them again so they were the subject of the experiment was watching exactly the same thing two people throwing a ball between them but the first time round they believed that they couldn't participate and the second time round they believed they were being deliberately excluded by the other people and all the pain centers in their brain lit up like a christmas tree <laughs> exactly the same pain centers that you know if you'd hit your your thumb with a hammer so um and then then they uh, interviewed the people afterwards uh who were the subject of the experiment and they asked them you know to what extent did you feel excluded and they were able to show that the the greater the feeling of exclusion the greater the pain uh centers lit up so um it, it actually does make sense if you think about the the history of the brain like i said it doesn't it hasn't changed for 80,000 years. And so, um, you know, and back then, if you weren't a member of a group, you would die. So this idea of being excluded um, is is genuinely painful. And not just that's not just an analogy. That's an actual physical, physiological fact uh, that pain is experienced in the brain exactly the same through social and physical means. Um, So when you think about applying that to organisations and organisational culture, you know, this, you bring in the chief transformation officer and they say to you, I'm going to change everything. And your brain says, um, if you change everything, my belonging is at risk. And my brain believes that that is a threat to life. Not just, you know, it's, it, it might be a threat to my role. It might be a threat to my status. It might be a threat to my ability to earn income and feed my family. But my brain is saying this is a threat to life. And most people have no idea that this is going on for them all the time. And it shapes so much of our behavior. So, yes, that was a long explanation, but I think it's a fascinating insight into the way we actually work um, and, and one that we're completely unaware of most of the time. Mm. And I think too, like, um, you know, from an operational perspective where, 
you're not consulted on changes that might affect you indirectly or directly. You, you know, become frustrated by the process and go, well, why didn't you just ask me first? And I could have told you, you could do this and you can do that, but you can't do this because of, you know, compliance reasons or regulatory requirements or, and then when they find out and they go, oh, actually, we can't do it that way. Let's do it this way. And then before you know it, you've had three rounds at it and you then start suffering change fatigue because you're like, we're now going through the whole process again when if you had just had a, a longer consultation period and had more people involved in, you know, the decision-making process, it would have actually resulted in a far better outcome. Yeah, it's, it's so true. You know, um, it's really interesting. I, I often hear people tell me that, you know, humans are bad at change or people just don't like change. Um, you know, it, it's garbage to say that humans are bad at change, I'm afraid. Um, that is simply not true. We can change on a dime. We are breathtakingly, spectacularly good at change in the service of our own belonging. So where it keeps us safe we can absolutely change overnight. And we've all done it in the last few months. Um, and, you know, we have, we've got this kind of global experiment of change, which has fundamentally shifted everything in incredibly quick time. Um, but, you know, if, if, if somebody tells you, uh, like, I think a, a good example. Um, so when you've got a boss who um, hates PowerPoint, uh, you obviously communicate with them in some other way. And then the next day you get a new boss who loves PowerPoint, then you immediately start becoming fabulous at PowerPoint. You know, we, we can absolutely change, but we've got to know why and it's got to be safer to do the new behaviour than it was to do the old. Yeah, <laughs> just laughing to myself when you say that because I um, – I had a boss that uh, I, I absolutely loved colour coordinating everything and I had every different colour highlighter and I used to, you know, use it for everything and, um, you know, segmented everything in a way which I thought was amazing because visually you could differentiate. I didn't realise my new boss was colourblind and so <laughs> he was like, oh, no, 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 we can't do that and I was like, yeah, okay, numbers sounds good, so yeah. Overnight, mm. you suddenly became fabulous at yeah. number coding yes. instead of colour coding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So in your research, Fiona, what were some of the common virtues of good leaders that you came across? Mm. So um, definitely this idea of psychological safety comes out very strongly. So um, the ability to create a, a sense of curiosity and a sense of safety. So leaders who ask uh, rather than tell as a as a you know primary mechanism of of leading their people um, leaders who genuinely understand that leading others is a skill and one that is very important and one that can be and should be developed so I've seen a lot of leaders over the years who have been technical specialists and you know they might be an exceptional technology person or finance person or risk person or you know HR person or whatever kind of person um, and then they're given a team to lead and 
you know, often in those early stages, they really struggle to let go of their identity as the expert in their technical specialist, you know, whatever they're, they're a technical specialist in, and genuinely embrace the idea that their role is about leading others. Uh, so people who really understand that and take the time and put in the effort to develop those skills um, and create that environment of safety where every single member of the team knows that they will be heard, they will be respected, and um, they will be given the benefit of the doubt if they make a mistake, if they challenge the status quo, if they ask a question um, or have a new idea, that that's a safe thing for them to do. And, and leaders who create that environment get the absolute best out of their people uh, because the brain is a threat detection pattern recognition machine. And, you know, any, any hint that a question that you've asked is disapproved of or when you've made a mistake that somehow that is a sin rather than a mistake. Um, we, again, we have these evolutionary superpowers that show, you know, the, the raised eyebrow, the deep sigh, the crossed arms, you know, we, we know what all of those things mean. And, you know, we, 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 have a, we have this threat detection pattern mechanism machine that can't tell the difference between social pain and physical pain and so is, and is, is there to keep us safe and will avoid that social pain. So without that psychological safety, you're not ever going to get the best out of your people. So do you think um, that requires more training at uh, senior managers and middle management level as well to help kind of um, foster and cultivate that type of environment? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've because I do some leadership development. I probably, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be. I don't think it's possible to have enough leadership development. I don't think anyone's ever fully baked. Um, we all have things that we can learn. Um, I think that the transition from being a technical expert to being a people leader is one that is very rarely supported sufficiently. So I think that's a particular transition that um, we should all be paying far more attention to. Um, I think then further up when you become, you know, a leader of leaders, that's another really critical transition that needs some support and then when you become a leader of division or enterprise that again you know each of these is a different level of work and understanding what that means and how to shift from one level of work to another is absolutely critical for a leader um, and I don't know that you get that without some form of genuine uh, leadership development um, the other thing I would always recommend is I think there's there's something to be said for group learning that's still uh, a very valid way for people to learn but I think some sort of individualized application of that learning. Um, so the, the kinds of programs I run have group sessions, but then some one-on-one -on -one coaching for each participant to make sure that they've understood a concept, that they can apply it to their particular situation. So, you know, a degree of tailoring is really critical. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone can ever have enough leadership development. So, I'm probably a little biased in that. <laughs> so um, for organisations who um, I guess would like to engage in your types of services, uh, Fiona, and get some help on some of these workshops, where can they find um, your details? Where can they sort of go? Sure. Um, so I have a website, fionarobertson.com. 
I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I have my profile up there and lots of videos and articles and uh, you can download the first chapter of my book. Um, you can obviously buy my book from, from my website. Uh, so those are probably the, the easiest ways. And I absolutely welcome contact. Um, I'm a complete culture and leadership tragic. So um, I always welcome conversations with leaders uh, whether things are going well or not going well. Um, and, you know, if I can help, I'd be absolutely delighted to do that. Do you have a copy of your book there, Fiona, you can hold up? I do. I just happen to have. <laughs> um, yeah, this is it. It's called The Rules of Belonging. Uh, and it's all about organisational culture. As I said, culture is not easy, but I think it is simpler than a lot of us have been led to believe. And I think until you really understand what it is uh, and, and have some kind of shared language, then it's very hard to have a sensible conversation about it and it's particularly hard to do anything about changing it. And before we wrap up today, Fiona, are there any sort of top tips you'd like to leave our listeners with? Mm. Um, I think I'll just reiterate some of the things I've already said. You have to notice before you can choose. So if you're looking to um, figure out what your organisational culture is and, and change it to something else, first go to the trouble of figuring out what are the rules of belonging. So ask yourself, what does it take to belong in my team? What does it take to belong in my organisation? And once you've answered that question, ask yourself, are these behaviours the ones we want to see more of? To, to execute our strategy or not. Um, and if the answer is not, then figure out what you do want to see more of and make sure that people earn belonging by doing the new rather than the old. Fantastic. Really great tips. Thanks again, Fiona, for Thank joining us today. Fiona. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.